0: Good morning. morning. For those of you who've been with us for a while, back in November we started on a journey together, a journey through the book of Luke. That was actually even before Advent, before the beginning of the church year. And we started in Luke 1, and we've worked our way through. We haven't hit every chapter, we haven't hit every story, but we've been slowly going through the book of Luke. Here on Sunday mornings. I know some small groups have been going through Luke as well. And I know that uh, we've been challenged to at least one time during this period of time to sit down and uh, read it through in one sitting. And I hope you've, I'm not going to ask for hands on that, but I hope you've done that. Um, so we, we went through Advent. We went through Christmas. We went through Epiphany and then Lent. And our Lenten devotional was in Luke. Um, that, that many of us went through together, um, and now it's Easter. And now we're in the last paragraph, of the last chapter in this story. Of course, the story of the Bible is a story, the true story of the world. And so this is one story, one biography, in the middle of this, uh, this, this book, this Bible, and, and in the middle of the story of the world. The author, Luke, actually wrote a second volume, and I think we're going to be picking up on that probably next week. But for now, I'm going to look again through Luke and this journey we've been on. The first couple chapters in Luke are about two births, the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. But very quickly, by chapter 3, we arrive at these boys as 30-year-old men. In public ministry, we see G, we see John first drawing crowds, gathering disciples, preaching a baptism of repentance. Jesus shows up one day in chapter three at a very public event, crowds around, and he is baptized by John. And um, and that's a that's a pretty big event in the life of Christ, the beginning of his ministry. And sh- and right after that, he leaves. Remember that he goes to the wilderness, and there he goes through some very um, difficult times. Emerges back into the public, into the public eye to begin his ministry. And we get to chapter four. It says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So immediately we see Jesus not as, as some small figure trying to be noticed, he's noticed, and he's on the public scene. Later in chapter 4, he returns home to Nazareth, the place he grew up. And uh, that's the first time he really announced in public who he was after his baptism. And uh, you remember they ran him out of town, right? He returns to Galilee. And there he runs into a... Um, uh, uh, he's publicly teaching. And he's, it says here... I need to keep up with this. It says here that they were astonished by his teaching and by the authority he had. And in fact, he was interrupted by a man who had, who had a demon and, and was crying out and interrupting his preaching. Don't do that right now. And, and Jesus um, restored the man throughout the evil spirit. And as you might imagine, it says that reports about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. So, he's somewhat of a celebrity at this point, right? He is well known. He's well known for his teaching and, and more. By the end of chapter 4, Jesus is on a healing spree. We see him being chased down by large crowds of people. It says, And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the towns, to other towns as well. I was sent for this purpose. And so. We see in chapter 5, he kind of runs into three guys who are fishermen and are having really bad luck. Remember those folks? Peter, James, and John. And he says, hey, you catching any fish? And they say, no, we're having a bad night. And he directs them to where the fish are. And immediately after that happened, what did they do? It says in chapter 5, they left everything and followed him. So sometimes when you arrive at that, in that passage, particularly if you just turn to chapter 5 and read that, that sounds strange that they would, this guy would give them fish and they would leave. But you've got to put it in the context of the story, and that is that Jesus was well known. You know, when he came to the seashore and asked them questions, um, asked them about their fishing, they were kind of like, wow, this is a celebrity and he's talking to me. Um, they knew who he was and they knew his message. And they left everything and followed him. What would cause you to do something like that? You're at work. You've been doing it your whole life, your whole adult life. And somebody comes along, and you would leave everything to follow Jesus, to follow that person. Imagine the situation they find themselves in, but that's what they did. They left their jobs. We know that Peter was married. Not quite sure how that worked out, but he followed Jesus. He spent the next several years following Jesus. And from this point on, as we read the story in Luke, the disciples are with Jesus. So, chapter 5, they run across a guy who's got a really bad skin disease called leprosy. And it's probably going to be fatal for him. And Jesus heals him. The next story is about a man who's paralyzed. Jesus is in a house, and the the crowds are all packed in, and his friends want this paralyzed man to be healed. They want it so badly that they climb up on the roof, they cut a hole in the roof, they drop him down, hopefully easily, through the roof in front of Jesus, and Jesus heals him. One day, Jesus and James and John and Peter and others who are following Jesus are walking down the road. And they come across a guy who, well, think of him probably in our imagination like like a hitman for the mafia, all right? And Jesus turns to Levi and says, follow me. Levi has also heard about Jesus. He knows about Jesus. He sees Jesus come, and he leaves everything and follows Jesus. Now, imagine the impact that had on Peter, James, and John. Changes everything, doesn't it? We've now got this hitman from the mafia who is following Jesus with us. We see Jesus with his growing band of followers. And in chapters five and six, he teaches them about fasting, he teaches them about the Sabbath, he heals. And, this, and the, the people following Jesus, we don't have the numbers, but it's just growing and growing and growing. And the way Luke describes the calling of the disciples in chapter 6, it says that Jesus went and prayed. He prayed all night. When he came back to the group, he decided to do something. He chose 12 people out of that group to be um, discipled by him, to be apprenticed by him. We also see in chapter 6 that... um, We're going to start having some run-ins with the religious and political leaders of the day. And and that's a theme that from chapter 6 forward in Luke kind of grows and builds and grows until we get to the cross. Chapter 6, there's a lengthier teaching. Jesus um, is a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. It may have been a compilation of sermons. We don't know. But Jesus is teaching his disciples. Chapter 7, we see a Roman centurion, not a Jew, a Roman centurion whose son is healed. We see, I'm sorry, whose servant is healed. And in chapter 7, we even see a boy who's raised from the dead. The disciples are following Jesus. They're seeing this. They're watching this. Now, there's an interruption in the story at this point. John the Baptist Remember John, Jesus' cousin, is in jail. In the midst of all this, what's the question he sends to Jesus? Are you really the one? Wow. John's not sure. All this is going on. He's hearing all about it. He's seen it. And now he's not sure. And Jesus says to him, look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm teaching. Look at the miracles. Yes, I'm the one. Then we see in, still in chapter 7, the disciples are with Jesus at a rich man's house, one of the leaders' houses, one of the Pharisees' houses. And they're at dinner, so it's probably a really nice meal. And in the midst of it all, we see a prostitute who comes to Jesus, breaks into the house, comes to Jesus, pours very expensive perfume on him, weeps over him, uses her hair as as a towel for him. And Jesus forgives her. By chapter 8, we see that Jesus is now, when he's teaching the crowds, he's starting to use parables. Um, He's using stories to help people understand what is the kingdom of God. And also in chapter 8, we see in, in verse 22, That they're out on a boat and there's a big storm. The disciples are with Jesus. There's a huge storm. They think they're going to die. And Jesus calms the storm. They say, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke. He's actually sleeping, right? He awoke, rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where's your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? You know, they were used to the miracles. That was kind of no big deal. Raising people from the dead. But man, he can even, he can even control the weather. We see the story of a man with, some, with demons and You remember the story, Jesus sent the the demons from the man into a herd of pigs and uh, made everybody upset, except the man who was healed, who went around excited and happy for what Jesus had done for him. Chapter 8, we see another resurrection, this time a little girl. Remember, the disciples are watching this. They are following Jesus. They are listening to Jesus. They are seeing what he's doing. And then, chapter 9, it's the disciples' turn. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So they left. And they went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Peter, James, John, the other disciples... They got to even experience this and do this work. It says, um, On the return, the apostles told him all that they had done. Um, They were very excited about it. When they returned, the crowds were even bigger. Now we see a crowd of 5,000 people. This is the story where it got late, they didn't have any food, and Jesus fed them. There's more healings. Jesus again... Uh, Jesus foretells his death. Then we see the disciples. What are they doing at this point? They're arguing about who the best one is. Who's the best disciple? I am. I am. Chapter 10. Jesus sends out even more disciples. He sends out 72 this time. Um, And when they got back, they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So the disciples probably included the 12 and another 60, um, they were, Jesus kind of sent them out as an advanced team to where he was going to be going, and they could heal, they could, they could, they had power over demons and authority over demons. Jesus teaches them to pray, in chapters 11 and 12, we start to see things kind of building up with the Pharisees, once again, heading toward an inevitable run-in between them. Throughout throughout chapters 13, 14 through 18, he continues to teach and heal. And the disciples are there with a front row seat to all of this. What an exciting time. Must have been amazing. By Luke 19, Jesus has attracted the attention of everyone. Even... Even some of the leaders had come over to Jesus. And we see him. He's finally arrived at the capital city, at there, Washington, D.C., at Jerusalem. And when he arrives, what happens? Everybody turns out. It's been building to this moment. He is entering the capital city. And if he wanted to, he could be the king. They are ready to crown him king. It was kind of like a Trump rally. Just, just kidding. <laughs> but then the story changes, doesn't it? We have Holy Week. We have the Last Supper. We have the cross. And the disciples are there for that as well. And then we arrive at Luke 24. At Luke 24... It's Sunday morning. Last couple weeks, we've discussed the first parts of this the women at the tomb, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says that after the disciples on the road to Emmaus met with Jesus, they rose and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, the disciples, and those who were with them gathered, and they told them what had happened. That was the intro. Okay, then we get to the passage today. And as they were talking about these things, right? All, all this stuff, Jesus stood in front of them. And what does he say? Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? Aubrey would say at this point, Holy cow! <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. The disciples had walked with Jesus. They, they've, they've gone through three years of this. He appears in front of them, and they doubted. In John 20, there's another account of perhaps the same meeting. On evening of the day, the first day of the week, the door is being locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And one of the disciples, Thomas, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him what had happened. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came and stood among them. Oh, okay. The other disciples told him, but Thomas said, Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So then Jesus appears and he says to Thomas, very generously, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered to him, answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are you. You've not seen. We were not fortunate enough to have lived at that time and place to have actually seen the risen Christ. Jesus is recognizing in that statement, I believe, the power of doubt in our hearts, in our minds. In our lives he acknowledges that even if it, he acknowledges that if the disciples are doubting, how much more are we going to struggle with doubt many generations later? I know a couple weeks ago Aubrey talked about doubts when we were talking about Emmaus, but I just want to come back to that for a few moments today because as I was reading this passage and praying over this passage um, in preparation to speak, it just struck me that the disciples doubted. What is doubt? What's the relationship between doubt and faith? Is doubt the opposite of faith? Can you have faith and can you doubt at the same time? Is doubt an issue of just not believing? I'm going to talk just a few moments about these terms and the way I understand them so that, we, so that when I talk the next few minutes we can have a frame of reference. Belief, believing, is an idea that's wrapped up in a discussion of knowledge. Do you know something? Do you believe something is true? So doubt, when talking about believing something, believing a fact, would be a hesitation to assent to that truth. So for example, I believe that Columbus crossed the Atlantic in 1492. I believe that to be true, but Once I start thinking about it, I think, well, did he embark and land in the same calendar year? I don't know. I haven't looked it up. I need to look that up. So now I'm having a doubt about the 100% accuracy of that statement, right? It makes me hesitate to say, yes, that's true. Now, faith and belief are sometimes used interchangeably, but I'm going to Separate them just a little bit here. Faith is a commitment to trust. Maybe to trust someone else, or maybe to act on a belief. So, C.J. comes up here after the service, and he offers to sell me a tie, because I, I need one. And he had, it's a nice tie. It seems like it's in good shape, and the price is right. But wait a minute. I have never seen C.J. with a tie. <laughs> what are the odds that it's actually his tie to sell? <laughs> right? So suddenly I'm hesitating because I certainly don't want to be prosecuted for, you know, possession of stolen property, of purchasing stolen property, and it's arguable that I should have known it was stolen property, right? <laughs> so now I'm, I'm doubting. I was going to trust CJ, I was going to have faith, but now I have a doubt, and it makes me waver. It makes me hesitate on whether I'm going to act or not. Do you own a tie? Okay, so I thought. <laughs> so, when we talk about belief and faith and doubt in the context of the claims of Christianity, in the context of following Jesus, what does that mean? So I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a church. I grew up in a, in a Christian school. And I, I've never... I can't remember a time that to some extent I didn't believe that God exists, that He is the Creator, that He loved the world, that Jesus died and rose again. I've always, I've always believed it. But at the same time, I've always had questions. I've always... Doubted. And to some extent, I understand that's a function of my personality. That's a function of who I am. Growing up, I thought, and I, looking back, I might be wrong, but I thought that everybody around me didn't have doubts. Um, the church I was in, the family I was in, seemed to just accept things as they were, as they were told, and, um, and that faith was and belief was easy for them. And to some extent, it was, I think, for some of them, and easier than for me. Maybe they just didn't like all my questions, I don't know. But there was one verse at our church that we heard quite a bit. It was 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you, John said, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And every time that verse was read, the emphasis was on the word know, that you may know that you have eternal life. And, it, and it was usually in the context of, are you saved? And if you're saved, you will know it. And the way they used the word know was, about, was the equivalent of certainty. And for somebody like me, that was really difficult. They taught that doubt is sin. And the implications, if not the direct teaching was... If you're doubting, you're probably not saved. So the result in my life was for many years, I got saved many, many times <laughs> just to make sure it stuck. But as as you keep getting saved and you you really lose the ability to believe that this, if the first 200 didn't stick, how do I know this one stuck? It was, it was a struggle. It, it was... It was um, difficult. Now, I know, I know many people here, some people here probably don't struggle with doubt. And that's, that's great. Don't, don't try, okay? <laughs> but I know, I know that many of us do. And our, and, our, and our doubts are probably as varied as our personalities. My encouragement to you is this doubt isn't sin. Embrace your doubts if you have them, take them seriously investigate claims that challenge your beliefs. Now, you might say, that's all fine and good, but sometimes my doubts can be overwhelming. And I've been there. I know that. It can make you waver or hesitate in your belief or in your walking faithfully. So, as I think about how I deal with doubt, I think there's two things that stand out that I found to be helpful. Um, And I'd like to share them with you, and they may or may not be helpful for you. First of all, back in Luke 1, it's another one of these verses that I heard growing up. Aubrey preached on this back in November. Luke is talking to this guy, Theophilus, about why he wrote this book. It seemed good to me, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning concerning the things that have been taught. Um, Aubrey, when he spoke on this, said that that word certainty was probably something more like reliability, okay? But that word certainty um, always stood out to me. But I think this idea of certainty has a real hold on our imaginations, When we talk about faith, when we talk about matters involving the Bible, events from the Bible, creation, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Paul, we talk about God revealing himself to us in Christ, it seems to me that that the implication is, or maybe I'm inferring, but there's there's this demand for some high level of scientific certainty, like in that word, no, in 1 John 5. So sometimes I've been part of gatherings where it seems like people are trying to gin up a feeling of certainty. Sometimes in worship or in the way people pray, I, I get the sense that we're trying, trying to feel certain. Uh, but the fact is, we don't live that way. We don't demand certainty in the rest of our lives. College students, considering a couple summer possibilities, right? Right? You you aren't certain which one is going to be turn out to be the best one, right? Um, Sean Hogan recently switched jobs. He had a job. He saw an opportunity. He probably wasn't real clear which would turn out to be better. Certainly wasn't certain. The the, art and Nancy going are moving to town. They're going to buy a house. Trying to decide: should we buy an existing house? Should we build? What part of town should we live in? You know, you take the evidence, you take the facts that are available to you, and you process it, and you pray about it, and then you make the best decision you can make. We don't demand certainty. It's a story that Paul likes to tell, and so I to tell my version of it. It's still not favorable to me. Um, back when we were, I think, engaged... She had questions for me around, will you love me forever? And I know better now. But as a 22-year-old philosophy student, I started talking about things like, uh, well, I I hope I will. (laughs) You know, she she wanted to know, well, 20 years from now, will you still love me? And I said, I don't don't know. (laughs) By the way, the correct answer is yes, dear. Okay. <laughs> but I'm, you know, I was talking about certainty, now, there's no certainty when when you marry. You know, there's no, you know, you just make a decision. There's a, there's the evidence available to you, and you make a decision, and then you live it out. That's faith. You know, as a philosophy student, the skeptical argument for a while was very powerful to me. This idea that, you know, my perceptions of the world are, could be described primarily as brain waves, And that there's this, you know, there could be, it could be the truth that there's this brain in a jar. And this uh, sci- mad scientist is giving it electrical impulses. And all my perceptions of, of you people and all my perceptions of the world are just... This brain sitting in a vat getting these electrical impulses. And as a, as a, as a person seeking truth and certainty, that was, that was very powerful for me. So how do you get out of this conundrum? Well, you become a lawyer. No. <laughs> there are some principles in the law that we use. If you've ever been on a jury. Anybody, anybody been on a jury? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're on jury, there's some principles of the law that you will hear about that are quite frankly helpful for me in this discussion. Two things I want to talk about. First of all, burden of proof. Who has the burden of proof? I got out of the skeptical conundrum when I realized that the burden of proving I'm wrong should be on the skeptic, right? So... My experience tells me that I'm not a brain in the jar. And I'm going to rely on that. And so now it's, it's not my burden to prove that the, earth is, that the world as I perceive it is real. It's their burden to prove that it's not. We have that in the law, you know, where the party, so you have a, a lawsuit, the plaintiff is suing the defendant. The burden is on the plaintiff to present, present, present enough evidence to convince the fact finder, the jury, the judge, of of what the right outcome should be. So I think assigning the burden of proof is important when it comes to faith. Um, Not certainty, right? But the second piece of burden of proof is standard of evidence. So in the law, if you've been on a jury, been on a criminal jury, the, uh, the the standard of proof is what? Beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So what the, the image is that there's a, a pile of evidence, and if it rises to the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, we will convict this person and punish them. And if you think of beyond a reasonable doubt, it's like we're 95% certain, right? Do you know that in a civil case, the standard is much lower? Plaintiff sues defendant, wants $50,000. The plaintiff has to prove by preponderance of the evidence. There should be enough evidence that you're like 51% sure that the plaintiff is right. Wow, that's pretty low, isn't it? There should be a little more evidence on the plaintiff's side than the defendant's side to make the defendant pay. That's nowhere near certainty but we're willing to make this person pay this person if we're 51% sure. Here's my point in all this is to say this. Nowhere else in life do we demand certainty. that I, I feel sometimes we demand of ourselves when we're talking about issues of faith. It's not certainty that's the goal. It's confidence. Are you confident enough that the plaintiff is right to make the defendant pay? Are you that confident? Or, when we're talking about somebody's liberty, are you confident enough that they're guilty before we punish them? So when it comes to faith, what we're looking for is confidence. Confidence that the Bible is true. Confidence that the claims of Christianity are true. And it's understanding this was the first step In helping me to really deal with the doubts in my life. The second thing is this take care of your imagination. Take care of your imagination. Our imagination is where we do much of our thinking, it's how we see the world, it's how we remember events and people. It's where our thinking starts and ends. So my son Hanson is away at college. When I, mean, I think of Hanson, I don't think facts about him. I don't think he's 20 years old, he's male. Um, he's not yet as tall as I am. <laughs> I mention that to him. Um, those, I, don't, I don't think facts about him. I see an image. I see Hanson laughing, doing something intentional to, to annoy his brother. Okay. Maybe you see Hanson sitting up here at the drum. But it's in our imagination that our thinking starts and stops. We like to think that we're fact-driven, we're scientific people. Um, And I think we have a tendency to not care for our imagination. Because it's just facts. It's more like caring for a garden. What we believe, where we place our faith, and the impact of our doubts... Has so much to do with how we imagine the world and our place in it and what we imagine God to be. The Bible tells us that God looks a lot like Jesus. Is that what you imagine when you think of God? Our imagines are constantly being shaped and reshaped by our experiences, by the influence of people around us, by the stories we believe, by the stories we tell. And that includes movies, and books, and art, conversations. For example, okay, think the voice of God. Okay, what do you think of? Think of like a booming voice from the sky. Just think of Morgan Freeman, right? <laughs> okay? It's your imagination. By the way, Our readings help us to imagine that what God's voice is really like is a soft whisper. And if that's not what's in your imagination for the voice of God, you're going to miss it. In Emmaus, the voice of God was a burning within their hearts. Is that what you imagine the voice of God to be? Because if you don't, you're going to miss it. Faith is a journey, and the way to walk that journey and to have our imaginations properly and constantly shaped is primarily to live your life in a community of believers centered around Scripture. That's why gathering here, gathering together regularly, is so important to staying faithful. This liturgy we participate in every Sunday is a powerful way to shape our imaginations. Coming here Sunday after Sunday, gathering in small groups during the week, it's a very important means to take care of our imaginations, to walk in faith, to walk faithfully, and to embrace our doubts without letting them overwhelm us. So back to Luke, Luke 24. Luke has told us the story of Christ, the story of Christ and his disciples teachings, miracles, and yes, at the end, we see the disciples doubting. But that's not the whole picture. Look at verse 52. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Yes, they were doubting, but they were also worshiping and blessing God together. May that be said of us here at Incarnation as well.